Got that one now? That one comes from Hodu Hodu Laronai Kito Kileolam Chasdo, a line of gratitude from from Hallel. And um, given this is Thanksgiving week, I thought it's it's fitting to start over there. Little plug also uh, that we have a uh, one o'clock Thanksgiving session on gratitude today. Who, if you can handle here um, engaging with me a second time in one day, <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that. But um, okay, friends, great to see you. Thank you for being here. Wonderful, wonderful. So, um, <laughs> so we're going to talk about co-share, co-share, tying a knot. Tying a knot. Any any good Boy Scouts here? Here in the 21st Malacha, we learn about the Malacha of kosher, tying a knot. A sailor or a young boy in America involved in the Boy Scouts is frequently taught about the importance of learning to tie a knot. But is it important to know how to tie a knot in the Jewish tradition? The Talmud records, this is from the Babylonian Talmud of Chulin 9a. Rav Yehuda quoted Rav, a scholar must learn three things. That would be a fun activity, right? If you are a Jewish scholar, what are the three things you should know? Rav Yehuda says, scribal arts, slaughter, and circumcision. Okay, well, I failed as in a scholar because I know none of those three. I'm not a moyle. I have no interest in being a moyle. No offense to moyles. Um, I would not be a good person for circumcision. Just in uh, lots of levels, especially just can't handle blood. I would not be a good shochet. I would not be a good animal slaughterer as a vegan. <laughs> and scribal arts, I just have very few artistic skills with young kids who, um, when they hit age four, they're better artists than I am. And so Rav Yehuda says a scholar needs to know three things, scribal arts, slaughter, and circumcision. Interesting question. Why those three for Rav Yehuda? I don't know, but I fail. Rav, Rav Hanania Bar Shlemia quoted Rav. He says also, meaning he agrees with those three, but also the tefillin knot, the wedding blessings, and the knots of tzitzit. Ah, so for Rav Hanania, he says, yep, you got to be a shochet and a sofer. A sofer is the scribe, the scribal arts. Scribal arts means a sofer, really, you know, really, um, and, and a moil. And Rav Hanania says, no, you want to be a scholar, you also got to know how to make a tefillin knot. And wedding blessings and the knots of tzitzit. Okay, so now I'm one for six. Um, I don't know how to make a tefillin knot. I don't know how to do the knots of tzitzit. These are not super complicated things. I just haven't uh, learned how to do it. And then wedding blessings. Obviously, I know how to make wedding blessings. You can't go to rabbinical school and not know how to make wedding blessings. So, okay. And why does the other one, Rav Yehuda, disagree? These are common knowledge. He says, be a scholar. Everybody knows these things. What do you mean? You don't have to be a scholar to know to fill in not wedding blessings and tzitzit. So it's interesting that today we think of Jewish knowledge as um, like Judaism 101. Do you know basic stuff? But to them, it meant, do you know how to like get by? If you go move to a village where there's no one else there, do you know how to make your kosher meat? Do you know how to circumcise your son? Do you know how to write a Torah? Do you know how to take care of your tefillin and tzitzit? Now, today we live in a community where like, okay, I'm going to go to the guy and buy my tefillin tzitzit. I'm going to go buy my kosher meat, you know, or whoever's going to buy their meat. I don't need to write it, write a Torah. Someone else will do it. And I'll hire the moyle, right? But if you live in, uh, I used to say Des Moines, Iowa, but now there's actually, I mean, there's Jews in Des Moines, Iowa. So I don't want to diss Des Moines. Uh, you know, what's a random place? Actually, I saw the, the last state 
that, that didn't have a Chabadnik, finally got a Chabadnik. What was it? Uh, Montana? Or was it South Dakota? South Dakota. Oh, but do you hear the Chabadnikim are, 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 are racing over to all these all these countries that or, that Israel is normalizing relationships with, they're like setting up Chabad's on every street corner. <laughs> I don't know who's there for I guess the, once they let the Israelis in, the, the Chabad goes. And we used to say the only country, what, what's the only, oh, Wyoming, Wyoming, thank you. What's the only country that uh, uh, actually, you know, there's a guy, that, the Chabadnik of Montana, we gave a Yatom grant to, uh, a grant because he, he, he adopts children. And so uh, we, we supported him in that journey uh, publicly. Uh, it's a great family. In any case, uh, there, was, we, there was one country we used to say that, uh, had co- that had a Chabad, but no Coca-Cola, right? Basically any country that had Coca-Cola had Chabad. But now, uh, but there was one that, that, um, that couldn't have Coke, but could have, have Chabad. What was it? Cuba, it was Cuba, <laughs> Cuba, because of, uh, you know, how business was done. In any case, so it used to be if you're isolated, you had to know how to do these things. Today, we rely on community or a global marketplace. You buy a, you could buy your mezuzah on, uh, on Amazon. You can, you know, order your, your seat seat from Yerushalayim, whatever you need to do. Okay. In any case, why do we share this? Um, because Rav Hanania thinks that knowing how to make a knot is uh, essential to be a Jewish scholar. Okay, so uh, that's interesting. Rashi explains that the gematria, the numerical value for the word tzitzit, which is sadi yud, sadi yud taf, is 600. Okay, 600. 600 plus the five knots and the eight strands equals 613. So Rashi says the gematria by tzitzit is the 613 biblical meets vote. Right, six hundred is the is is tzitzit gematria, five five knots, eight strings, um, and uh, I mean it's really four strings, but it comes out on both sides, so it's eight. So uh, so the knots are essential in getting us to understand the mitzvot, according to Rashi. So this is about conscious life in our awake state, but Rav Cook, teaching about the value of dreams, argues that our dreamlike state. Our dream state is like a secure knot to, to life as a whole. Okay, this is interesting. So let me read this Rav Kook from the Igrot Haraya. Um, here's what he says over there. As for dreams from a clear perspective of the knowledge of God, we are led to conclude that our inner world is conducted in ways no less accurate and precise than the external world. Okay, very interesting. Therefore, it's impossible that the state of dreaming, which takes up a considerable part of life, let's say somebody sleeps eight hours, a third, let's say you sleep six hours, a quarter of your life, um, is not bound in a secure knot to life as a whole. Interesting that he uses this idea of a knot, a secure knot to life as a whole, both material and ethical. And since it is as a general rule, it is impossible for a person to correctly perceive his inner state, their true inner, their true relation to the divine ideas, which are the basis for happiness and ethics. His inclination toward happiness and good as such, not as the result of any external cause, and to know, according to this view, the value of the powers in regards to their use and needs. Such an inner inclination is therefore better recognized in an instinctive way, so that not only the rational, rational mind recognizes the power of free imagination, together with rational analysis, put the matters in their proper place and clarify the impressions that flow from the innermost content of the self-conscious. These impressions are the most reliable. This is the content of dream analysis and the soul's inner emotions as a whole. So um, there's a lot to say there about dreams and about Rev Cook's view of the unconscious and the Kabbalistic view. But suffice it to say here, that Rav Cook, if we go back to the what, three, four, five, six, is it? Yeah, six line down. Um, that it is bound in a secure knot to life as a whole, both material and ethical. This idea that dreaming—you can almost picture this, like the unconscious and the conscious woven together, or a knot being tied between strings of various types of consciousness—that it's actually really secure and really tight. It's not that there's a world you go to in your sleep and there's a world you go to in your awake state, those two influence each other. And, um, obviously, and, um, um, uh, and interact with each other, um, consistently, which is to say, if you take a neurological view that the firing of neurons that, that occur in the rational state continue, 
um, without the will, the willful state of dream, or if you take the Kabbalistic view of the mystic approach, that there's kind of some revelatory experience, something new that is being created rather than just the firing of neurons from one's rational state, then um, uh, then it also it, it flows the other direction. In other words, the 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 the, the perspective from neuroscience is that the awake state um, flows into the sleep state. The perspective of the Kabbalists is the opposite. The sleep state flows into the awake state. Right? Remember, the Rambam says, and many others say, Nevuah, prophecy, happens in a sleep state. Only Rambam, only, only Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses is the exception. In the Torah, Moses talks to God directly, whereas every other prophet um, here's God in a, in, in, in a dream, in a sleep state. It's through the channel of the unconscious. Why is that? Because you have to break down the cognitive to get to the spiritual, right? The idea there is that the cognitive realm is a barrier to the spiritual realm. Rational analysis is not just an extra faculty in addition to the spiritual attunement or awakeness. It actually works against it. And so you have to be able to turn off the mind to turn on the soul. Now, of course, there's other Jewish theologians who who think those two actually operate together, like the Chabad movement, right? It's called Chabad because it's Chachma Bina Dat, Chachma Bina Dat, three forms of the intellect. So for them, they're, they're a very intellectual form of, 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 of Kabbalah in, in its pure theological form, which is to say that the cognitive realm enhances uh, the, the realm of the soul. But for others, the cognitive realm gets in the way. It gets in the way. The, the thought, the thought is a, is a distortion. It, it's a, it's a form of lie, or or operates on a lower plane of of reality. Okay, we often talk about the difference between seeing God's face and seeing God's back. I love this, but there's another paradigm that equates God's back with the divine tefillin knot. Here's what it says in the in the Babylonian Talmud of Brachot Seven A: I will remove my hand. God says. And you will see my back. That's in, that's in Exodus 23. But Rav Chana Bar Bizna said in the name of Rav Shimon Chasida, this teaches that God showed Moshe the, the knot of the divine tefillin. Divine tefillin. So this is very interesting. What do we learn by seeing the knot of God's tefillin, so to speak? It seems that God's face and back may represent something universalistic about the human relationship to the divine, right? Most commonly, what we talk about is that we can't see God's face because that is the explanation, that the rabbis say, of theodicy, why the righteous suffer and why the wicked prosper. That's to see God's face, to understand justice in this world. To see God's back is to understand what we can understand of justice in this realm. So that's the universalistic relationship, God's face, God's back, something that all can access. But the tefillin knot signifies the God of Sinai, a particularistic manifestation, the aspect of God that relates most directly to the Jewish relationship to God, indeed, the partnership with the divine. Okay, so that's my first argument over there, that the tefillin knot is about a particularistic relationship rather than universalistic. Another suggestion is that seeing God's tefillin is seeing the divine light. Why is that an obvious connection? Because or, or, the Hebrew word for leather, is or, the Hebrew word for light. The leather of the tefillin can also be understood as light. So what does it mean to see God's tefillin? See God's light. See God's light. Right. And so here it says to fill a knot, but it's a code way of saying um, in seeing God's ra radiant light. But the straight up simple read of the image that God creates a last a lasting knot. A connection, a relationship, a covenant with the Jewish people symbolized by this particularistic knot. Right. What does it mean to see the knot? It means there's a lasting covenant. Right? It's something that lasts. It's tied together, the Jewish people and God. Another way to think of this, however, is that God has agreed to bind God's self to the mitzvot. Oh, this is the most radical version. The same ethical commitments that we're obligated to. Thus, we can expect God to be merciful and act justly. This is why Avraham can challenge God at, at Sodom, at Sodom, to act justly. Right? What does it mean that God's wearing a tefillin knot? God's saying, I'm bound by the mitzvot too. The same ethical paradigm that I give you, 
don't murder, don't steal, don't kill, be honest, all these things that are obvious, right? I too am, I need to operate by those. Yes, you won't see it. It's going to be, it's going to be nistar. It's going to be hidden, but you should know that I'm binding myself to that same, that same moral code and you're welcome to hold me accountable to it. It's interesting to note that the Rashbi places the two naughty mitzvot next to classical ethical mitzvot. Here's what it says in the Jerusalem Talmud of Peya. By the way, that's the Rashbi's cave. You know, it'd be great. It'd be fun to do a class on the comparative, the comparative nature of, um, of uh, Plato's cave and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's cave. So Rashbi, who's Rashbi? Well, in tradition, he's the author of the Zohar, right? He, he brings down the Zohar, as we say. How, how do you translate that to English? Brings down. You know, we, 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 you know, we talk about that in, in Jewish thought. You know, the Rashi brought down. The idea is that it's like in Shemayim, it's in heaven, and you bring the Torah down. Um, but I don't know how you say that in, in like not yeshivish English. <laughs> you know, the, the uh, I guess you could say teach over, teach over or shares, I guess. Anyways, this is actually a real place. This is a real place. Um, it turns out I lived uh, a few miles from there and I never even knew it. I lived in a frat and this is it, it by Tokoa in Tokoa where, where the Rashbi lived. Um, and this is the cave. We have good reason, archaeological evidence to believe that the Rashbi lived there. And that was in fact the cave. So just to remind you of the story that there's Roman persecution. So Rashbi and his son go hide in that cave right there. I mean, Israel's it's just amazing. Israel's just amazing. You can go to these places, you know. And and he goes and hides in there and they and they bring down the Zohar for seven years and they study mysticism. And then they come out and they see uh, the Jewish people working in the fields and they can't handle it. So what are you doing? You could be receiving revelation in your life and you're working in the field. You want to get rich. You want to, you want to have more crops. Like, what are you doing? So they, they shoot fireballs. They shoot fireballs at everyone. Right? And then uh, the angelic voice emerges and says, okay, you're not ready to live in the real world. Go back in the cave. So they go back in there another seven years and they study Zohar again. And then they come out and this time, uh, uh, ostensibly, they don't, they don't shoot fireballs. So this is the cave. It, it says there in Hebrew, Makom Kadosh, a holy place. What does it say? Nalishmor al mikudeshet hamakom al nikayon. So please guard the sanctity and the cleanliness and this and and the, and, the, and the cleanliness of the place it says over there on that on that little sign next to the cave, which is interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Anyway, uh, okay. So, anyways, uh, that, that's just a brief reminder of who the Rashbi is. Um, lots more to say about him. So, it says over here in the uh, Jerusalem Talmud, because as you recall, there's two Talmuds: the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud. Interesting that the more authoritative one is written in the diaspora. The Babylonian Talmud is more authoritative in the tradition written in the diaspora, and the Jerusalem Talmud written in Israel is less interesting. And why is that partially? Well, it's complicated because of authority and who, you know, who wins, <laughs> who gets to write the book is the winner, right? But also the Babylonian Talmud likes machloket, likes disagreement. The Jerusalem Talmud operates much more like a missioner. The, the Gemara is more like a missioner where they just offer kind of uh, positions. They don't disagree as much. So it, it has less of a, of a, of a dialogical or uh, dialectical um, uh, back and forth. In any case, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai says, it says, honor God with your wealth. With what should you honor God? With that which God graciously gives you. Separate your gleanings, your forgotten sheaves, the leftover corners of your fields. Separate Teruma, give the first tithe, the second tithe, the poor person's tithe, and dedicate the challah of the loaf. Make a sukkah. A lulav, a shofar, to fill in and seat seats. Feed the hungry and poor and the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. If you have the means, you're required to do all these things. But if you don't have the means, then you do not have to do even one of them. <laughs> okay, so I just bring that because it's interesting the Rashmi is talking about how to serve God with all of our wealth. And all of it is ethical. And then in the middle of there, um, you have a few rituals, including including tzitzit and tefillin, having to do with the knots. So the naughty mitzvot are connected to the classical mitzvot over there in terms of the service, in terms of the service of God. Tzitzit and tefillin, if one chooses to wear them or not, remind us of the big picture. Through engaging in these rituals, we zoom out to the bigger ethical and spiritual picture. We can remember that everything matters. 
On the contrary, though, from the perspective of nihilism, from nihilism, nothing matters. So, too, someone in midlife might begin to perceive the futility of his or her life, that they didn't achieve the goals that their younger selves had hoped to achieve. Things may still have importance, but nonetheless, as one moves closer to the end of life, many people become filled with feelings of pointlessness. Schopenhauer, who was probably the philosopher who was most famous for pessimism, teaches about the intersection of futility and hopelessness. According to some readings of Ecclesiastes, uh, the book of Kohelet, that book also investigates the meaning of life and suggests that it comes up empty. So how might we respond to anxiety in the face of our mortality when we take on projects and goals that have a hard endpoint? Psychologists say we might feel a deeper sense of futility, but we can respond by engaging with what matters by undertaking activities that do not have measurement or an endpoint. Devarim she'ein lehem shi'or. So we say in the traditional liturgy. Um, we say um, each morning, uh, uh, do I have a sitter right here? Um, okay, let me just grab a sitter real quick. Sorry, one second. Um, in the traditional liturgy, we say each morning after the Birchot to Torah, the blessings um, of Torah, we say, these are the precepts that have no prescribed measure. I love this idea. The idea um, of things that have no beginning or no end. Don't just do it for 20 minutes and it's over. It's kind of ongoing. And what's on that list? Peya, Bikorim, V'harayon, Ugmilut, Chasadim, V'talmud Torah. Right? So um, the corner of the field, which should be left for the poor, the first fruit offering the pilgrimage, acts of kindness, and Torah study. The two most relevant to us today, of course, are, um, are acts of kindness and Torah study. Um, because most things do have a prescribed measure, as we've talked about. Give 10% of your income away, but no more than 20%. It's very measured, right? Other things, you should pray at this time of the day or that time of the day. Sukkah, Sukkot is just eight days. Don't, don't build a sukkah in December. Like, like you're welcome to have a hut in your backyard. Just don't call it a sukkah. You know, there's like times and places for things. But Tom, Torah study, you should, Torah study is always going. You should always engage in Torah study. Acts of kindness, doesn't start, doesn't end. Always find times to do it, right? So anyways, uh, let's go back to what we're saying here. What we're saying here is that people can have a midlife crisis, right? They can have that at 25. They can have that at 85. We call it midlife. But really, it is the idea that sinks into the soul. It happens in everyone's life, that life is meaningless. It's all futility. Um, why? Because I, I'm really in touch with my mortality. And what's this all about anyways, right? If I'm just gone, like, wh wh what have I actually done? What will I actually be? Um, and so the so one might think, do things where you have a hard, a hard stop, a hard completion to feel like you've achieved something. But the psychologists say the opposite. Actually, to respond to futility, we should engage in matters that do not have a measurement or an endpoint. Right, things that what we call in Hebrew lishma, you're doing it for its own sake. It's not some end you're trying to achieve. You're just immersed in an activity for its own sake, right? Something that gives one sense, some oneself, a sense of meaning, a sense of purpose. That's beyond something that that is that gets finished or achieved. And so, for me. Um, one of those things clearly is Torah study, immersing ourselves, not be, just because I do believe there's a teleological purpose, right? We're trying to do something here. We're building community. We're trying to work on our character. We're trying to know things that can be helpful, but also we're trying to immerse in something that can be inherently meaningful, right? Without any ends that's achieved. I'd be interested in hearing from some of you, what are some of those things for you and whether you agree with that idea that a response to futility can be immersion immersion in such an idea. Okay, we're almost here at the end. We're going to open it up. This is a great role that religion can play for us. There's no end to learning, serving, or prayer. We engage in ritual not to complete a task or project, but for its own sake.
Indeed, as Rabbi Tarfon reminds us, even though we must live up to our responsibilities, we're not obligated to finish the work that faces us from Pirkei Avot. The challenge that all humans face to leave the world better than we found it ties us together. At times, we feel that our life is becoming untied. It is in those times when we retie our knots, solidifying our sense of self, our soul power, and our deepest way of being by doubling down on activities that are ends in themselves. On Shabbat, we may still wear tzitzit without tying them, but we do not wear tefillin on Shabbat because Shabbat is called an oat and tefillin is called an oat. It's a sign. And so tefillin, while tzitzit is a seven-day-a-week mitzvah, tefillin is a six-day-a-week mitzvah. We reflect on the act of tying to see how tied together reality can be, the conscious and the unconscious, the physical and the spiritual, the ritual and the ethical, the divine face, and the divine tefillin knot. Before I open it up, I just want to make one other point here, which is that kosher, tying a knot, is connected to the word we might suggest of kosher, like food. Not exactly, right? Because kosher, in terms of food, is spelled with a chaf, chaf shin resh. Whereas a kosher, kosher a knot, uh, uh, tying a kesher, a kesher is a connection or relationship or a knot. Kosher tying a knot is spelled with a kuf. Now, Rav Hirsch and others have argued that two letters of a root is enough. So the shin resh is enough to make the connection. And the fact that they sound the same also might deepen that connection. This idea of that which is fitting, that which is ethically and or ritually fitting for consumption and so too that which is fitting that it ties together disparate parts into a whole. Okay, friends, I'm going to pause there. I would love to uh, open up the conversation. Go ahead, Hi, Cheryl. Hi. Uh, I guess you can't see me, huh? Okay. Um, Anyway, uh, isn't it true, maybe because Torah study is ongoing and ongoing and ongoing, because no matter how much you might even study the same text, you could still glean something new from it, something in your particular situation in life, in your particular, at this particular point in time, whereas if you complete a task, then you've completed the task and feel a sense of accomplishment. So the, the ongoing Torah study and learning it's just a, an opportunity to keep going or redefine or, or re-understand or newly understand something. So it's forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. That's so well said. That's so well said. And, and I think it's, um, we're a part of that revolution here of, you know, of really bringing that back to life, what we're doing collectively here, um, that, and what Cheryl describes so nicely there. And I think that if we had this kind of description, I think oftentimes we think of Torah study means I'm going to open my chumash, I'm going to read the verses of the Torah, and then we're going to talk about it. And that's great. That's great. But to broaden that sense of what that engagement is. And I really think if one commits themselves to it, and by commit, I don't mean like commit all one's time. I just mean commit the mental space to it. I really think that, um, and this doesn't have to be totally, totally postmodern, to- totally Kabbalistic, that everything can be a part of our Torah study. You go to the opera, you go to the movies, you read a novel, you have a conversation, that if you are someone who thinks about Jewish values and Jewish ideas, that everything we're doing is partially part of Torah study. Now, that doesn't mean going to the Beit Midrash shouldn't still be central, right? The Beit Midrash, the study house that we come to together, is the place of Torah study. But if we allow it to overflow, then it can flow into everything we do. The idea of the streets being the Beit Midrash, the workplace being a Beit Midrash. And so, uh, and so Cheryl, I uh, love your formulation there around thinking about how it's always ongoing. Now, because, because we're in such a project... Uh, project-minded orientation in our world today, we have all these new ways that have emerged that, that bring completion to store, Torah study. I mean, obviously, the whole idea of Simchat Torah is to celebrate the completion of Torah study, right? We read the Torah each year, Simchat Torah, we celebrate that we finished it. Now we're going to start again. But the idea of Daf Yomi is a very new idea. 
Daf Yomi that you're going to read the whole Talmud over the course of a little over six years. There's a, is it seven years? Seven years or six and a half years? It's seven. Seven years, thank you. Seven years, seven years. So uh, you're going to complete that. That you know, this, uh, this idea is really only a, a little over 100 years old, um, and it's really caught on a lot. And, um, and thankfully, it's as it's become more inclusive to women. There's tons of um, women's groups that now do dafyomi as well. Um, in any case, uh, oh, Des Moines. Des Moines has a reformed temple, a conservative shul, and a small Orthodox shul. At least when I lived there. Oh, you lived in Des Moines. Oh, I'm sorry, I dissed Des Moines. I, <laughs> I lean. No, I wasn't dissing it. I was, I was praising it. The, the the heroic Jew who lives in Des Moines and is able to keep a Jewish life in Des Moines. But maybe it's not as hard as it used to be. Any case, um, I think it's a great point there, Cheryl. And um, um, I, and anyway, anyways, my point there was that that today we like completions. We like completions. But at the essence of Torah study is that there, that there really is no completion. It really is a total immersion, a total immersion. Thank you for that. So I would, I have a couple of comments. And actually, um, speaking of uh, Daf Yomi, um, I've been doing the Daf and participated in two CMs on um, oh, Sundays with over 800 women from all over the world. Oh, it's great. really tremendously exciting. And Kolkakovo to Michelle Farber, who has really energized women uh, studying Torah. Yes, yeah, she's it's great. Really, it was quite wonderful. In any case, and I so I recall though that when we were doing Shabbat, that uh, one thing that stuck in my mind about uh, tying the knot is that we tie a knot in order to untie it. So that's something about that. You know, we tie ourselves in knots, and then we're challenged with untying. Um, oh, so it's great that you say that because the malacha next week is untying knots. Go. Yeah, and so next week we're going to talk about untying knots because there, there's a role to strengthen relationships and connections, and then there's a role to unravel, right? So great, yeah. And then another comment about that also came up uh, from the DAF was when you're talking about or light. Um, well, the beginning of um, we just finished Erevin Baruch Hashem and started on um, Pesachim, and um, the first challenging concept is that or which we interpret as light is in fact in that um uh begins with means darkness so that's kind of an interesting conundrum there because it says you know by the light you have to search for hummus by the or you know light but in fact it means darkness in that there's a long convoluted ex a discussion of that sorry i missed one part um uh which part means darkness uh, or light so if you you want to light a candle to search for chametz the night before but in fact it means the evening and the night before oh, oh, so oh, oh it's another yes one of those where what is the, the apparent meaning is in fact not yes oh yes long unpacking of that it's, you know yes amazing 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 yes thank you Yes, uh, it, it, you know, and that actually touches, goes back to Cheryl's point there as well, that um, that there's so many layers to interpretation that occur that adds so much meaning to this. Because I think that, you know, one can say, oh, I'm learning this so I know what to do. But some modern Jews in particular might not want to say, I want to do everything that every book says, right? But actually we can tap into, that's what we're doing with the Blachot essentially here, tap into a deeper meaning of ideas that's beyond the prescriptive, um, just what we what we can or should or must do, what we can learn from the broader ideas. And, and the fact that we have Pardes, right, the Peshat, Remez, Sodrash, is that we can learn all these different layers. And the rabbis were engaged with that radical um, uh, activity um, of being able to uh, to really turn words on their head in terms of in terms of how they interpreted things and part of it was solving major problems you know in our session yesterday on racism one of the things that um the scholars and our in our call yesterday talked about was how we have a responsibility to reinterpret texts right to make sure they're moral in our time and at times when we can't with integrity reinterpret it we have to disavow it we have to we have to um we have to speak out against it of course that's uh that's more challenging um, and so let's say, for example, let's say you're, you're, you're let's say you're, um, uh, I mean, to pick a most obvious example, because there's so many, I mean, some of them were, some of them, the rabbis wanted to resolve. They wanted to resolve stoning children, 
right? Okay, bad idea. Let's not stone children. How are we going to get out of this? Okay, and what they, what they say, and this is this is this is the same thing by like death penalty, you know, is up. Oh, we're no, there's no, we're not going to find children like that. You know, there's not children like that. Or by death penalty, like there, there's going to be legal mechanisms that are so complicated, you're never going to actually get there, right? But some things, for some reason, they didn't want to resolve. Um, so today, like for them, no problem. Death penalty, we can we can just you know get rid of it. Stoning children, no problem. The SOTA, right? The the SOTA, we're going to get. So all these things, they're going to resolve these problems. But here's here's one of the most uh, obvious cases. Um, where for whatever reason they, they chose not to resolve it, and as 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 LGBT allies, we'll have to decide what to do with that. As LGBT allies, it's gonna you're gonna read the straight up verse, and it's gonna say it's gonna offer a prohibition, um, and thankfully it doesn't stop there. But the problem is you, when you have once you have centuries that engage in a certain way, it becomes even harder to, to you know to uh, to engage in that change. So either you're gonna have to you know reinterpret, or you're gonna have to um, um, or you're going to have to, you know, uh, speak out against, or, you know, or there's an, an, another of uh, other options. I'm in the camp that things that taking responsibility for the text means um, showing, showing the text in its context and showing its evolution. Right. And so to, just to speak out against, again, what that means, and this came up, uh, this came up, but, but I don't think that problems in the Torah are problems for us today. Um, here's the most obvious case. The case of uh, the case of slavery, right? How many people today say, "Get rid of the American Constitution because it allows for slavery"? They say, "They say, no. What's the problem? Who cares? We have uh, we have amendments. Our amendment dealt with that problem. Who cares what the Constitution allowed for slavery, right? So too, who cares if the Torah allowed for, allowed for slavery? We have amendments, right? And so." At that time, just as at the time writing of the Constitution, it was totally impossible to consider the abolishing slavery. Right, we're only talking about you know a few hundred years ago, a little over two hundred years ago. By the way, Alexander Hamilton. It's amazing if you're a Hamilton fan to think about Janet Yellen. Is it Janet her first name? Janet. You know that Yellen. You know, finally our first woman and. Uh, a Jew, a Jew, you know, which is amazing to have a woman in the role, and a Jewish woman of Polish descent, um, you know, who's going to be that treasurer secretary. So, okay, fine. It took us a few centuries to get there. Baruch Hashem, we're finally there. It should have happened a while ago, right? But fine. Now there's a Jewish woman who's going to be the, you know, treasurer secretary. It's a great thing, and uh, you know, and then they'll, they'll they'll make a great Hamilton play about her one day. You know, it'll be even better. But anyways, what are we talking about here? Oh yeah. So uh, so the Torah. It, what, so it took it, so. It took only 150 years ago we abolished slavery in America. Okay, so the Torah obviously is not going to abolish slavery. You know what I mean? It's not a problem. It's not a problem. It's going to make it more ethical to have slavery. Um, and uh, and with the, it's built into it the evolution that we're going to eventually get rid of it at the right time. That's the way we deal with problems. And so um, – so I'm very much in the camp that we should embrace the text that has ethical problems because built into that text is the Torah Shabbat Alpah, the evolution of those ideas. Um, but I'm I'm always open to push back. In any case, Andrea, we thank, thanks for that. Thanks for that launch there. <laughs> Someone else. Well, I think you're I think you're really right about that. I think that. Um, Oral Torah is what we're doing, really. That's my interpretation. It didn't stop with the end of the Talmud, all the commentaries since then, and how we engage and struggle in all of our study groups. We are, uh, we love our Torah. <laughs> you know, we, we, we praise it and we carry it and dance with it, but we acknowledge the context and the pain that some of the uh, actual written Torah show this, but then we have oral Torah to struggle with it and articulate it and bring it into our present time. And that's the beauty. It's such alive. It's really alive. Exactly. And, and I would encourage folks to really think of it that way, that you're writing Torah Shabbat Paz, Indra said, right? You can write Midrash. If you, if you write a commentary, you think of a commentary, you know, that's Midrash. Right. We we as right. We as Jews who engage in Torah learning, when we have an idea, we are continuing the Torah Shabal Pad. It's an amazing thing. And if we share that with our children or grandchildren or with a group we're learning with, like we're we're doing Torah Shabal Pad. And so 
what happened in the more traditionalist segments of the Jewish community is they wanted to close off um, layers of interpretation. What they basically said was, um, oh man, what's the phrase? Um, um, it's called, oh, it's called halacha kabatrai. Halacha kabatrai means you're, you're bound by the previous generation. So what does that mean? It means that the Gemara, it means that the, that the, the Mishnah can't uproot the Torah verses. The Gemara can't uproot the Mishnah verses. The Gaonim can't uproot the Talmud. The Rishonim can't uproot the Gaonim. The Acharonim can't uproot the Rishonim. And we today, in a post-Acharonim age, can't uproot the Acharonim. You're bound by the conclusions of the previous era. You can't uproot that. But what it also means is that you can't skip over. I can't go back to Maimonides and say, I'm going to hold like Maimonides does because he's a Rishon. And after the Rishonim and the Achronim, I have to operate by the Achronim. And their idea there actually in some convoluted way is, the convoluted is a little too strong, in some um, you know, more complicated way is progressive in the sense that they, they, they want to hold by the newest position, not the oldest, right? You might've said, oh, you're bound by the oldest position. They're, they want to say, you're actually bound by, so to speak, by the newest, most recent position. You can't skip over. And so what, what many non-Orthodox Jews would say, which an Orthodox Jew would not say, is why is this a Jewishly valid position today? Because the Talmud says it, right? An Orthodox rabbi doesn't say you hold by the Talmud. Just like they would say, we're not a people of the book, we don't hold by verses of the Torah. They'd say we don't hold by the Talmud, right? Because what do you mean? There's been 1,500 years more commentary since the Talmud, right? Whereas someone else might say, look, if it's in the Talmud, it's, it's a valid Jewish position. If it's in the Maimonides, it's a valid Jewish position. So that's interesting. Like what time periods have weight and which time periods? And so um, you would think the most progressive position is we hold by what we say today. But actually, that's the most traditionalist position. The more progressive position is open up the tradition so that I can access the fullness of it, right? Um, or here's another example of that. One of the viewpoints as to why we record the dissenting view of the Talmud, there's many viewpoints of that. Of course, one view is just integrity. You quote the losing position. That's integrity, right? But another viewpoint is so that the losing position might be accessed later at the right time. Right at the right time. So many are going to say, "No, it lost. It lost. It's gone." The reason, right? Why does RBG want to want to want to be recorded in her dissenting view? Why does RBG want to be recorded? I don't know. I don't know why she wanted it. Okay, there's people who know who think about that, but there's but there's lots of ideas about it, and um and one might actually be that that there's also weight to the precedents that that lost, right? That someone might say, yes, there's no pres legal precedence in America for doing this, but there is legal precedence for a Supreme Court justice having argued this, right? And here's what RBT in 1985, uh, when did she come in? In the 80s, right? The 80s. It was Bill, Bill Clinton, right? So what was it, 80? Okay, whatever. So, um, so in 1990, RBT wrote this in 1990, and so there's some precedent. So that's interesting. The precedence of that of of a of a dissenting of a dissenting view. I, I I'm obviously not the furthest thing from an American legal scholar. So I don't know actually how much weight a dissenting legal position actually carries, as opposed to a actually one that won. Um, but um, no, 1993. No, 90. Oh yeah, it was Clinton. Clinton. Clinton was 92 to 2000. Right. So sorry about that. Um, so, um, anyways, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, anyways, Torah Shabbat Pet, we're all a part of writing that and contributing to that, and I think that's a really beautiful, powerful thing. That the 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 chain of connection. But uh, Shmuley, I think that uh, the reason for the dissenting opinions, it, both in the Supreme Court and in the Talmud, are written because they, like you said, they do have weight. And also the weight of reconsideration, especially, you know, I mean, now they're trying to, I mean, the Supreme Court revisits things, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, depending upon which side you're on. But um, uh -huh. the Talmud, I mean, if, if there's a dissenting opinion, then one can look back and say, oh, you know what? This was a consideration. And this consideration, like you said, might hold true, truer truer in the interpretation of what's important today, which yeah. you said was right. the more traditional view. 
Because I was wondering about that when you said there are people who want to cut off. And I, I, I was thinking, well, would that be Haredim who want to cut off and say, this is how it was, so this is how it is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, it's, so, yes. Okay. So, there's a few things to say there. To your first point, I also wonder, it's a great point. And I also wonder, Cheryl, if, if quoting the dissenting viewpoint can also be argued the opposite way, which is that it delegitimizes any future potential of using that viewpoint. They're saying, we're quoting this dissenting viewpoint to show you that we also thought of that. And, and having known that view, we also rejected it, which in fact makes it much more complicated because if you, it, it, it's easy to say, oh, we've progressed. We know something different now that they didn't know then. And because we know something new in our new state of enlightenment, so to speak, right now we can evolve that position. But if they say, oh, we're aware of that and we're rejecting it, let, let me give an example. People say, oh, when they talked about the right to bear arms, right? Of course they didn't mean like you could have a machine gun in the movie theater, right? That's not what they, but what if they said, what if they wrote in the constitution, we know one day there'll be people who want to bring machine guns into movie theaters and we mean that also, right? Um, and so um, uh, once something is actually named and thought of, it makes it that much more difficult to, so, oh, so, so here's, a, here's an example. So a lot of the prohibitions around women's inclusion, thankfully, I mean, in a, in a very strange way, were premised on the, on the idea that women were intellectually inferior, right? Why do I say thankfully? Right? I say thankfully because now that we know women are, are the furthest thing from intellectually inferior, it means open the floodgates. If they premised it on the spiritual DNA, right? The spiritual DNA of women is fundamentally different. And so that's why, oh, thankfully they didn't say that, right? Because if they had said they said, well, I, I actually don't know. Is the spiritual DNA of men and women different? Like, I, I have no clue, right? We, we have plenty of data to show intellectually there's no, no difference, right? So what happens when you record a view? Okay, so I, I'd love to hear thoughts on that. But to go to Cheryl's second point, yeah, the Haredi view it's a radical innovation with, with the, oh, the ultra-Orthodox do by freezing it because we don't have that tradition. We don't have this tradition of freezing things like, uh, you know, I'm going to do what we did 100 years ago and now it's frozen. Um, we don't have that idea in, in, um, in, in rabbinic thought as much. And so that's actually a, itself a radical innovation, you might say. Well, you know, but then there's also in the Talmud that is so interesting. So there's the Torah and the Torah is, is written Torah. That's fixed. That's Torah law. It's kind of, you don't, you don't mess with that. But the rabbis spent a lot of time in figuring out workarounds. How can we work around something that was in the Torah? So it's almost as if now in our time, we're, we're trying to, respecting Torah, respecting the Talmud, even with the dissenting opinion, trying uh, maybe uh, trying to find workarounds <laughs> to rabbinic thought that brings it into, you know, our present time. It's an ongoing living process. That's what I see. And I think that there's like, you know, <laughs> it's always fun to put point, you know, paint things in extremes because then we can just put ourselves in the middle. Right. And so the extreme fundamentalist says nothing changes. Right. The extreme assimilation says it has no value. Throw it away. <laughs> And then there's us, us in the middle, right? There's this huge middle of reform, conservative, modern orthodox, reconstructionist, renewal, non-denominational, whatever we are, right? In this middle that says, ah, I want to preserve and I want to evolve. Okay, so what's the balance there? How are we going to figure out how to do that? And where am I going to do it? And where am I not going to do it? And what happens when the reason for something, because the most common explanation as to why something should evolve is that the reason doesn't apply anymore. The reason doesn't apply anymore. So let me give uh, let me give um, uh, you know an example on that. Um, um, well, I mean, there's so many, there's so many. But 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 here's 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 one example. The reason for kosher wine is not about ingredients, right? Kosher wine fundamentally was about chutznut, chutznut, about intermarriage. If the Jews drink with the Gentiles, they'll marry them, right? <laughs> And so don't drink with Gentiles, just drink with Jews, right? Um, if you go to a bar or a nightclub or you go to parties, you go to the Chaims and toast, you drink, you're going to get married. Okay, so the idea was, um, so now we need kosher wine. And what does it mean it's kosher wine? It means that Jews handle it, 
right? Jews handled it. And so what do you say, um, what do you say in when, when, the, when the fundamental, when the whole demographics shift, you know, on an issue like that, um, or, you know, the wine production process shifts, and now the technical loophole is you just, um, you just cook the wine. Once it's cooked, it, it's called mavushal, right? Then the wine is, is, doesn't matter who handles it or who does this or that. And, you know, once it was kosher wine. So anyways, there's a whole bunch of cases like this that become complicated, you know, and this has to do with, with the malachot as well, is what do we preserve? What do we change? And how do we make sure it goes beyond just personal convenience, right? That the things I want to change are based on convenience, but actually about the integrity of the system and the survival of the system. It's kind of a big weight to bear. Hi. Hi. Oh, Lauren. I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Lauren. Hi. Uh, so I see it's kind of, um, well, it's law, right? In many ways, it's based on law changes over time. And and through, you know, what we learn in the Talmud, through rabbinical responsa, um, you can take any one subject and look at, at development and how it develops and why it was what it, it was. And it is as it is. I remember doing a whole learning a whole series on women learning you know it was starting off with you know it was what teach loot it was uh like you why would you teach a bird brain kind of and and the development by the time that uh the Beit Yaakov schools were started in Krakow that was completely revolutionary and even when I was growing up and I went to uh, yeah, a Hebrew day school, the girls didn't learn Talmud. It just wasn't done. Now, except for the Haredi community, it's, it's unquestioned. And I think we're going to see this with things like LGBTQ. If you read like uh, Rabbi Stephen Greenberg, who himself is a, is a gay conservative rabbi, or Orthodox. Rabbi Mike Meyerovitch, you have... Oh, he's Orthodox? Sorry. Yeah, Steve Greenberg is, is a, gay, a gay Orthodox rabbi. Right, okay. And Mike Bayarovich is a straight Haredi rabbi, but who serves an LGBTQ community within um, in New York City. You, you really, when you read them, you see the development and how what was probably misunderstood and misinterpreted can now easily be changed. So, and, and of course, at each point, we're influenced by the society around us. So, you know, it, as you say, it's, it's a balance, but I think part of the beauty is the growth and forming new laws upon precedent. Yeah, yeah, very well said, Lauren. There was really a lot there to unpack. And, you know, one of the great, one of the great, um, let's call it one of the great 20 Jewish debates that occurred throughout history was, should we give reasons for why things for, for, for the mitzvot, right? The 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 ta, the mitzvot they're called, and of course, um, traditionally the mystic said no. This that we can't we can't understand the reasons. It's far beyond the realm of reason. Just practice these things, and immerse yourselves in them. And the rationalist said no, no. We want to understand our world. We want to understand the mitzvot. We're going to give reasons to these. And so the ta'amei mitzvot it was very very controversial when Rambam when Maimonides wrote his Tameh HaMitzvot. He, he, um, he gave reasons for each of the mitzvot, sometimes doing acrobatics to do it. And why is it controversial? Well, many reasons, but the main reason is because once you come to the conclusion that the reason no longer applies, it seems very easy to updo it, undo it. For example, if I say, oh, kosher laws are outdated, they were really about the cleanliness, cleanliness, and today, you know, we know something different about the cleanliness of food. Boom, kosher is gone, right? Okay, or you know, or you could, or kidney oats, or kidney oats, a more controversial idea, you know, kidney oats. Okay, today we thought, you know, back then, you know, things got mixed up on Pesach. Today doesn't happen. Okay, gone, right? And so, where do we allow reasons to create change, and where do we, where do we not? So, so, um, so, for example, Steve Greenberg's, um, Steve Greenberg's attempt to um, uh, to uproot. The prohibition on on uh, male anal sex is based on the idea that it was abusive. It was abusive, and it was a teacher taking advantage of a student in a uh, in a in what was 
what we, he argues was quite common. And we know from that, you know, ancient times, it wasn't particularly real, rare to have male rape in, uh, in, in a school system or an educational system of, of a type. And he said, that's what they were against. Yeah, think of, think of, think, yeah, think of like the case of Sodom, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, that really what, what's happening over there, it's about abuse. It's about how do you treat the stranger or how you treat the vulnerable. Um, and so he says that what was going on there, but consensual, loving relationship, that's obviously a fundamentally different reality, he argues. Um, and so, um, yes. So anyways, yeah, L Lauren, thank you for that. And I think that this is one of the great questions and all the more so when we're, when we're talking about something which is a fundamentally new reality, medical ethics, new technologies. How do you think about trans, like surgeries for trans folks? You know, um, I mean, a whole, a whole range of, uh, of, of questions that emerge that are just totally fascinating. You know, um, they're almost all above my pay grade. You know, think about issues like um, uh, what they call clean meat or lab meat, right? Is meat that is produced in a lab based upon the cell of an original animal. Is that fleshig? Is that parv? Is that, you know, what is that? Um, you know, the general view that has emerged actually is that, um, yes, Lauren, thank you for that. Yeah, the cruelty to strangers, exactly. Yeah, Christianity makes Sodom about homosexuality. Exactly, exactly, right. Um, and and, um, and so um, um, uh, yeah. So the general position generally is that uh, um, is that uh, lab meat is itself probably going to be uh, probably going to be part of for various reasons. In any case, there's all these new things that emerge. All right, let's take one more question or thought. I wanted um, to go back to your statement that prophets hear or see God through dreams. And I guess uh, Moses is the only one who saw the face of God. And it kind of seems to me that this dream state is maybe a trance state. And in the trance, they can envision. And I would think Ezekiel and the chariot is an example of that. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. That's, it's very interesting, yeah, because of course there's very different states of consciousness and sleep. It's not like there's awake and there's sleep. There's all these various degrees of that. Um, Maimonides is trying to get around the problem of the fantastical that happens in the Torah. He's just not interested in, in talking donkeys, right? Talking donkeys is not literal. So for Rambam, he can do away with a lot of problems by saying none of this is literal, right? This is just uh, uh, metaphorical. These are stories. These are dreams, right? Whatever the case is. Uh, you know, others, of course, have different interpretations of that. And you're right, that trans state is so interesting. Um, and uh, those who try to maneuver and uh, their dreams towards... Um, towards some place of efficacy, some, some broader goal. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. One more thing about prophets before we wrap up here. I, I, I think I've only said this once before, but it may have been twice. And it came up for me because I studied the book of Jonah recently. And, um, and in studying the book of Jonah, I saw that in the Talmud, it says um, that a prophet has to be rich. Are you familiar with this idea? When mm -hmm. I, I was really startled by this idea. Yeah. A prophet must be rich. Why? I was so disturbed by that. I said, what do you mean a prophet has to be rich? Uh, what, what happened to the, the humble, poor shepherd who speaks truth to power? And so there's a lot to say about this idea over there. And actually, the, the, the Talmud's case is based upon Jonah. How did Jonah get them to go to Tarshish and flee Ninvuk so quickly? He paid them. He said, get out of town. He paid for everyone's fare. And let's get the, let's get the ship out of town. Right. So the, so they say, oh, see, obviously he was chosen because he was he was a rich guy. You got to be rich. And so part of the idea there, which is empirically flawed, is that um, you need a prophet who can't be bought. Right. Why can Michael Bloomberg stand up to whoever he wants to stand up to? Right. Because he can't be bought. Right. I mean, he, he you know, he's not looking to make a buck, you know, 
he's going to spend his own money. He's going to, I mean, you know, I, I'm not, this is not a promotion of Michael Bloomberg. This, I, this is just a random example. I mean, because you can put, think of, you know, lots of examples to the opposite, unfortunately. But in any case, the idea was you can't have like your donor you rely on. Okay, I'm going to be a prophet and you're going to be my donor, right? You're going to be the philanthropist who backs my prophecy because what happens? You're now at the whim of the, of the donor, right? The donor says, oh, here's the new prophecy you're going to preach. Now, all of a sudden, the executive director of prophecy has to preach the, the prophecy of the philanthropist, right? So, so what do you have to be? You got to be a rich prophet because you're not beholden to anyone. Nobody can buy you, right? You're gonna, you're, you, you, right you're, you can stay in the job or you can stay in the job. If you lose your donor, you still got a job, right? You're, stu you're, uh, you're still in business because, um, because um, you're not relying on anyone else to do your prophecy. In any case, there's a lot more to say about, about that. Um, uh, and of course, uh, it, the reason I say it's empirically flawed is because there, it's hard to imagine there's any correlation between wealth and integrity. Just to, you know, to suggest that wealth folks can't be bought or less likely to be bought than someone who's poor and, and needs to make a buck, you know, is uh, so. Anyways, there's a lot. There's a lot to say over there. So I want to conclude just with the bracha that you know, as we end this today, that uh, we're going to talk about untying knots next week. But for today, how do we tie knots? Again, tie knots between universalism and particularism, tie knots in relationships, human relationships, between the divine and human um, covenant, um, between our awake state and our sleep states. And this is what holds the world together, right? We tie ourselves together in relationships, in ideas. We weave together Torah throughout generations. And that keeps us together. It keeps us, the Jewish people together. It keeps the world together. It keeps families together. Um, and of course, there's times to unravel, but we will come to that next week. Um, I might see some of you at one o'clock today for Thanksgiving Torah. Otherwise, I'll see you for the Malacha number 22 next week. Have a great day. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>